Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to our podcast, Med Family. I am Eric Acker, the host, uh, hosting today with Karen, who's finishing up the yawn. <laughs> there we go. Hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, we are finishing up. This is our last week of general surgery. Then I'll have another three weeks of orthopedics. And then I will be done with my third year course. So that's pretty exciting. We're, we're, we're close to the end. <laughs> close <laughs> to the end of, uh, of third year medical school. And going to start fourth year here, which is kind of like only like six months long or so. So we're, we're chugging along just fine. Surgery has been going good. <laughs> he says that, but like Monday was like what ten colon colonoscopies or 14. something. Yeah, fourteen. Yeah, colonoscopies. something something ridiculous, and nobody needs to see that many butts. Well, I mean, I don't exactly <laughs> stare at the butt. Like once once the the scope is in, I just look at the monitor. I'm not I'm not like looking at the butt the entire time. That's kind of weird. <laughs> I know, but still. <laughs> yeah, just a lot of colonoscopies, a few. Uh, EGDs. Yeah, it was a pretty for fourteen cases. We still got done around two thirty, three o'clock. So like all in all, that wasn't bad. And then we didn't have call over the weekend. Our preceptor took Friday off to go on a trip to Florida. So we ended up having like a three day weekend. <laughs> and so we we got pretty lucky. And then we did have call a little bit last week, which really didn't involve us getting going into the hospital like almost at all. So. We just ended up with a few extra patients who had come in for the ED, and but not no like midnight runs to the hospital to do a case or anything like that. Nothing too crazy. Um, yeah, all in all, it was a it's been a pretty pretty solid week. And then we've uh, of course been trying to make progress on I think the previous podcast we mentioned being able to actually do more stuff in the OR, and so we're trying to make more progress there. We've been you know limited obviously with colonoscopies and. and EGDs, there's really not much, uh, there's really literally nothing that we can do during those procedures because, you know, anesthesia knocks the patient out and he puts the scope in, like, really, there's nothing else, nothing else to do besides just kind of hang out and watch, so that's essentially what we do, but we're trying to do a little bit more, I ended up actually having a pep talk with one of my preceptors partners, uh, I, I'm calling it the pep, I'm going to go with that, because it, because <laughs> it didn't start out like that, it, I, in the morning we do our pre-rounding, me and, uh, me and Chris, and we, it's pretty early in the morning, so I'm going through the list, and there was a patient that we had seen the previous week that we were kind of taking care of, but over the weekend, um, when our preceptor was out, the patient needed to have surgery, and so the doctor took care of it, a partner, and so I was, I was looking at the list, I saw this patient, and so I was like, hey, doctor, is this patient yours or is it ours? I.e., do I need to round on this patient or do I not need to round on this patient? And he's like, well, why are you asking me that? Or like, what's the purpose of you rounding on the patients? And so I, I gave a, a quick, I don't know, at 6 o'clock in the morning, what would pass as a quick <laughs> response of, well, I learned a little bit about the post-op course and see how the patients are doing. And he's like, okay, well. Then he answers the question that he wants to answer, and it's basically, as a third-year medical student, you know nothing, you are oblivious to everything, so you should get as much experience as possible. You should 
do as do everything you can that is allowed and take advantage of every opportunity and even he had some helpful suggestions that I might try to do this week as we wrap up but I think the punchline was why don't you just go round on the patient which is what I did but you know obviously my precept did not round on the patient so the answer the short answer would have been no it's my patient now <laughs> But he had some helpful suggestions. I think the helpful, the biggest suggestion that he was saying is if they're going to do a catheter, like a urinary catheter, like a Foley calf, then you should love up and be, you should do, you should do those. You should do them. Don't let the nurse just do them. You should do them because you're not going to have many opportunities in the future to learn how to do them. Maybe you learn in your residency, but why not learn now? And so be better at it in the future. And then he said, if anesthesia is going to intubate a patient, Maybe talk to anesthesia to see if they'll let you intubate the patient. So that's an option as well. So I'm going to see about if I can do any of those. <laughs> we'll see. Sometimes we don't we don't get into the room until the patient's under in, in some situations. So sometimes we're off rounding on patients and then we come back when the room is ready and the patient's sedated and we do our timeout. So it may not be 100% of the time I can do all that stuff, but we'll see what we can do. It's a, It's the effort we're going to try to make, I guess. Yeah. And he did come in while you were rounding on the patient and yeah. you guys talked over everything after you left the room, right? Yeah, that was, I think that was probably a silver lining is that he basically told me to round on the patient. And so I went and did, did my rounds on my patients and I went into this particular patient's room and was asking them in the middle of asking them my, like my second or third question. And he pops in right behind me and he lets me ask like one or two more questions before he jumps in and starts asking his questions. And then his questions were all the things I needed to know. So <laughs> I left the room and he then just kind of gave me a brief um, summary of what happened over the weekend and what he did, why he did what he did. Um, and then he he did a little bit of, because I think, I guess we did a HIDA scan on the patient. Uh, I'm not going to be able to uh I'm not going to be able to say what the definition of a HIDA scan is off the top of my head, but it's basically a scan that's typically done. You have the patient either inject or you have the patient ingest, I think it's inject a dye that gets into the liver, and you're supposed to check how that dye goes through the biliary tract. So if it doesn't go down the common bile duct, does it go into the, um, the gallbladder? And after you had the patient eat something, how much of that dye gets ejected out of the gallbladder? So you get an injection fracture, uh, fracture, fraction. So you, you can get some good data from it, but then he was talking about some of the pitfalls of it. And this is, I think, great stuff to know and learn on a rotation because you hear about these scans and these studies that you can do and you don't always get to know how practical some of them are like you you go for your algorithm obviously like okay you do an alt, uh, uh, upper abdominal ultrasound if that's inconclusive then you can do i think a abdominal ct scan if that's inconclusive you can do a hida scan like you can go you go you can go down your algorithm as you're trying to work up a gallbladder essentially but you're not always aware of how useful these scans are and how to maybe interpret them. And then another point I also learned during my internal medicine rotation that tagged red blood cells, which is generally used for GI bleeding, it can be used, like can be used for GI bleeds to try to locate GI bleeds, don't always work all that great and only really work if the bleeding is pretty significant and not slow. If it's slow, then you may not find anything. So this is kind of the same vein, like, hey, knowing that this study has some pitfalls and how when it works good, when it doesn't, then this can 
be helpful. So the Hydus scan, and I'll just for educational purposes and for myself probably helps to repeat it. Essentially, you're looking at the ejection fraction of the gallbladder, and, and there's, I guess, varying, from what my preceptor says, there's varying degrees of reliability. So I think some people say 35% ejection fraction is okay, just like in the heart, I think 55% is okay. But some people prefer 50% for the gallbladder ejection fraction, and so there's a little bit of variation there. But also, if you have a ton of stones in your gallbladder that could obstruct for it to you know, get out or not allow a lot of it in. So that can vary the study. If you've just eaten a big meal, then like that can vary the study. There's a lot of variables that could make the study not very reliable. So the general thought that these surgeons basically consistently said was you can use the HIDA scan to kind of buffer you in the direction you think you want to go like if it seems like it's quacking like a gallbladder but not exactly like nothing there's, there's a few things that might give you pause when you do the HIDA scan it could push you from maybe 60 percent to 70 percent sure that's gallbladder then you can you you can do a HIDA scan but like it, as the end all be all is this a gallbladder HIDA scan's not very reliable apparently and and this other my preceptor's partner, he basically says he almost never does it because he finds them so unreliable that he just doesn't do them. So uh, <laughs> that was essentially the long and the short of that conversation. And we didn't, he didn't actually do a cholecystectomy. He ended up doing uh, an adhesion excision because the, the patient had a small bowel obstruction, but she also had a history of gallbladder uh, cholecystitis. So like it was a I think we were vacillating on, okay, is this your gallbladder or is this your small intestine? Which, what's, who's causing the problems here? And I guess over the weekend, he decided it was a small bladder, a small bowel obstruction that was causing the problems and he took care of it. So that was, I mean, it was some good advice. I mean, and it's always nice that partners actually want to talk to you and give you some information. Sometimes it comes across as, a, I don't know, sometimes advice can come across as condescending. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard to know the difference well to look past it i think i'm, I'm gonna go look past it because sometimes it is condescending and it is intended to be such but maybe it's just like oh, those opportunities to just see the uh, uh the silver lining i guess and decide that even if this is a dark brain cloud is still something that you could learn from it well and you have to imagine that in residency you're gonna be the lowest of the low and you're gonna have to get used to be tr be treated that way by certain doctors. I know, and it shouldn't be, I mean, and truth be told, it shouldn't be the norm. Like in medicine, it shouldn't be the norm that the lowest person gets, for lack of a better term, pooped on. <laughs> and as you climb the ladder, you, you get closer to the person producing the poop. <laughs> anyway, uh, it shouldn't be that way, but that does seem to be how it has been. And I mean, plenty of people have talked about how, well, when I was in residency, I only slept for three hours, so... You should have to work really hard on, and since I'm not making you work hard on rotation, I'll make you work hard when you're not on rotation. Like I've, I've heard of some preceptors that will tell their students to write 10 page papers on stuff. And like, that sounds insane to me, but you know, that not, I haven't had that preceptor. So I, I haven't been so lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, I don't know, trying to find a silver lining is maybe something I've been working on this week a little bit. And yeah. So study wise, Eric took a, uh, practice shelf exam for surgery this week instead of taking a practice exam for, for step two because um, 
you were running to- close to the end of your U World questions and wanted to reset and start basically exclusively studying for step two because you only have a couple weeks after cores. But we're about five weeks out. Is it really only five weeks? Yeah, about so five August and a half. fifth. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So we're yeah we're definitely trying to focus more on the step two aspect, but at the same time, uh, it's the cart before the horse mentality. You want to make sure. I still have to take my surgery shelf before I can take my step two. So I want to make sure I'm in a good spot with surgery before I completely switch off. Like I'm still going to do surgery questions in my, my banks. I, I just select everything. And so out of a block of 30, I might get like five surgery questions out of it, you know, depending on whatever you will decide to curate for me that day. So I'm still studying surgery and just Trying to, trying to get well. everything else as well and be up to date on my pediatrics, up to date on my OBGYN and, me- and general medicine. Yeah. Oh, it's, been, it's been a little bit rough, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, and too, when, when Eric is in the hospital and, like, watching the monitor and whatnot, you, are, you and Chris are doing... I, I've been reading a book. Just and yeah, yeah, so we both have a book, um, Surgical Notes by Dr. Desta or something like that. It's a Kaplan. It's produced by Kaplan. But it's like quick little notes on different things that are all surgery related. And it's just having watched the online med ed videos and having done a lot of the inky cards, I, I, I feel like this is just a, the next thing just to kind of help some. I generally do not recommend uh, for myself anyway. I do not like recommend reading. Like I'll read the vignettes obviously for the questions and I'll read the, the explanations for why a question was right, why, why an answer choice was right and wrong. But I definitely don't recommend textbook reading because I, I'm just not, I don't have the attention span for it. And from every resource I've looked at and, and read, that textbook reading is generally like the lowest yield. It's generally the, you're not going to get the best bang for your buck, like for time-wise, what you can accomplish in an hour of reading a textbook versus what you can accomplish in an hour of doing questions and reading explanations. Like, it's night and day. It's just nothing Nothing beats the questions, essentially. That, and you're not the fastest reader. Yeah, I'm, I think attention span might play into that. Like, yeah. I get maybe a couple paragraphs in, and I'm just like, I'm kind of bored. <laughs> I'm kind of bored about this. And then so my mind wanders, and I'm oh my gosh, it's been like a half an hour, and I've only gotten like three paragraphs in, and I've had to reread the first two paragraphs three times. Like, it's it's not a great use of my time whereas a question bank I can generally sit down and focus on so we're you're transitioning studying a little bit we just got the news today that Eric did get orthopedic away rotation so that is good yeah so we're we're trying to do a few mixes here I know we talked about maybe keeping cards close to the vest but uh, (laughs) we're just planning out fourth year fourth year electives essentially so we we got one out in kansas city so looking forward to that Uh, i wasn't really expecting it to come through to be honest i I, i've been consistently trying to keep my expectations low throughout this process (laughs) just because i i don't know it's it's a long shot um everything's a bit of a long shot and it's an uphill battle and people obviously have done it before so i have a little bit of confidence that well i will i will match somewhere doing something but I'm trying to keep manage my expectations so I'm not like sorely disappointed when something doesn't work out. But yeah, we got the word today that uh, 
approved clinician nexus that they accepted uh, my application. I now I have to do like background checks, vaccinations, and all that fun stuff. But what I don't have to do the vaccine. I just have to send them my vaccination records and whatnot. And then we should be off and rolling. And just and then figuring out where I'm gonna stay for four weeks. And yeah, so uh, I love the gas prices are as high as they are. So I driving my truck. 13 hours sounds like a blast. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be like three fill-ups. That's going to be expensive. Yeah. Just to get there. It's like 900 miles or something like that. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, that's a a whole other can of worms. Maybe we'll figure something out. We'll figure something out. We'll see. What else has been going on? Oh, we, we had a we had the uh, appointment for you on Thursday. Yeah. <laughs> we are having a little girl. <laughs> you, can, you can share the news. It's, it's, so that's exciting. We'll be a little bit more even in numbers. The ultrasound tech was even like, do you know what you're having? Like, yeah, she was doing the scan and she, like, she of course, scanned over different parts of the anatomy. And she was like, well, can you tell what you're having? And yeah. Both of us like, were too chicken to be like, I think that's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty sure that's a girl. I kept the, the right lines. Uh, Karen, obviously, is a, we've seen a girl's ultrasound at least mm-hmm. once. And yeah. so, yeah. so that's exciting. Now the boys, I was getting nervous because three boys in one room right now is pretty crowded. And four boys, I mean, we could do it. There's room underneath that other bunk bed. Oh, no, we would. We're, we will. <laughs> <laughs> but Nora needs a roommate. She is getting a little spoiled of her giant bed all by herself. So she needs a roommate, and we'll, we'll see how that goes. I mean, she won't have a roommate. For a while. The babies do in November, and like generally speaking, we don't just plop the baby in the in a in a kid's room right off the bat. Like the kid, the baby stays in our room for a certain period of time until I start asking, "Is the baby ever going to move out of our room?" And then Karen, <laughs> <laughs> I think, feels bad about that. Then moves the baby out. <laughs> there is some convenience to having the baby within three feet of yourself. Yes. Yes. But there is also an inconvenience of a baby being within three feet of you. <sighs> they have pro- progressively gotten out of our room sooner and sooner. Yeah. With maybe the exception of Judah, because we were on the island. And we had to transition Xander to a real bed instead of a floor bed. Right. Because of the bug. The bug? The bugs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. Mm-hmm. But Xander wasn't in the... He was in the pack and play when we first Was moved. he really? Mm-hmm. Huh. I remember our cleaning person that came, and she made, like, a big old mattress. Yeah, that was really sweet. Yeah, that was really nice. We, I think we had Judah in a in a drawer, like a dresser drawer. We didn't, full disclosure, we didn't, like, it wasn't, like, a dresser drawer that we just closed that night. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was, like, a dresser drawer that we had put on a table somewhere. Uh, yeah, and it had <laughs> pillows in it and a, a sheet over Yeah, I mean, it was, it was pretty comfortable, and Judah wasn't, like, and it was like one of the like big ones from the bottom crawling dresser. Out or anything like yeah. that. He wasn't we're not able monsters. to he we're... wasn't able to roll over yet or anything. <laughs> we're not so monsters. we were fine. <laughs> but That's yeah. That would be exciting. Now you get to do girl clothes shopping and you, you prefer if I remember rightly, you prefer shopping well, for girls' clothes. Boys are so fun to dress up like little men, but how often do they actually dress up like little men? Whereas girl clothes are, almost all of them are cute. The The one downfall with girls' clothes is, like, nobody wants to lay with a bow on their back. Like, that's just uncomfortable. And then a lot of them, like, will have buttons up the back or, like, it's ridiculous to get them in and out. And so you have to weigh the 
the cuteness factor versus the can I get this on and off of them while they wiggle all over the place factor. Isn't that seem like a tutu though? Like isn't tutus like uncomfortable to, when you lay on the ground? Because that's what kids, are, you know, infants are doing. They're just laying on the ground. Yeah, but I don't know if I. Nora didn't get a tutu until she was older, and oh, she okay. picked it out. Mm-hmm. So, and typically, if I get something with like the netting on it, I make sure that there's something underneath so it's not up against the skin. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. But, but you, you generally like shopping for girls more than it's, boys. It, it can be a little bit more fun, but it can also be a little bit more expensive. So we're gonna have to curb that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, girls' clothes can be really expensive, especially for kids. And that's that's ridiculous. They grow out of those clothes like no one's business. And anyway, and Nora, I don't think our second oldest, our daughter, is. I don't think her hand-me-downs have really made it to. I don't think they'll be, make it to the baby anytime soon. No. I don't know. We'll, well see. No. Could, yeah. Well, I think you also have difficulty with girls' clothes because some of them are like short shorts. Yeah, it really frustrates me when I buy like the same same type of shorts for like same like oh it's like T three yeah T three and it's for the boys and it's like nice and long all the way down to the knees and you buy the same T three for a girl and it's like no leg you can see her her boy short underwear and it's just like that's not no <laughs> why is this necessary <laughs> no she gets she gets the boys cotton shorts and nobody's gonna know nobody yeah nobody knows that this, pants are different it's just dumb but i digress <laughs> well i figured i was just gonna wrap up the show with uh kind of we so today we were having a conversation about preceptor because we've had lately a string of patients who are a bit older or we're contemplating switching to palliative care so i, I just we we were talking about it before the show and i was like well, maybe we should talk about it on the show a little bit too because that's a i think we have kind of talked about it a little bit in the past but maybe a little bit we can talk about it some more today, just about end-of-life care and, I don't know, how tricky that is and how it's important to maybe talk about it with your loved ones and maybe talk it, you know, think about it before you're in the hospital, before you actually are old and frail and are trying to have to make decisions. But uh, the conversation that we were having, uh, we're essentially, it started off with, we we have a few patients of um, peg tubes or tubes that are going from the outside through the abdomen into the stomach. I think they're also called G-tubes, a whole bunch of different names, and I could be getting these wrong, so I apologize. But you can essentially hook up a patient on one of those tubes and get provide all the nutritional value that they need to sustain their body. And he was making the point that one of the things that differentiates us from animals is that we tend to have a, a strong uh, affinity to eating things by mouth versus animals. If you give, he's like, if you give an animal a peg tube and hook them up to food, they will never eat. Oh, really? Like they, They'll just be happy because what their body basically says is, I'm hungry, go eat, and they'll do it. Whereas if you have a peg tube and then you're constantly feeding them, the body never says, I'm hungry. So the, the animal will go, okay, I don't have to eat. Like they, they never get that prompt to go look for food. And he will say, okay, well they, you do run across like domesticated animals who are fat. And they're generally eating human food, and they're generally like they've been humanized to some extent. The human has kind of pushed them, <laughs> pushed them into that direction. And I don't want to get a lot of heat, so it's obviously some situations that are different than others. But this is a as a generalization. Humans tend to prefer to eat things by mouth. And he was making the point that when he gets older, uh, if he has to basically, he's not if he's unable to swallow food, then it might be just time for him to go. 
because he likes eating food. He likes, you know, if, you, if we're going to celebrate, we're going to go out and have a big dinner. If we're going to mourn something, we're going to go out and have a big dinner. Every occasion involves food, and I like food, so therefore... I don't know if I, you know, when I'm 80 years old, if I no longer can eat food by mouth, if it's worth going on. Is it kind of, was kind of the, the point or joke that he was making. But then it, it brought on the, okay, but when you get to that point, like, do you decide to do extra procedures? And he said, in some countries, you know, once you hit a certain point in your life and you're no longer really producing or you're, you're not really contributing to society, they stop giving you, uh, not food, but they stop like, no more dialysis, no more this, no more that. You don't do extra things. And he was saying that, you know, that how some countries deal with it. And there's not, there's a, maybe a rhyme or reason to that was something that he was saying. And in America, there tends to be an emphasis on do everything and anything until the, you know, your very last organ or cell finally closes its, you know, shuts out for the, for the rest of the life. You know, like, basically, you do everything until you, you you're dead. And obviously in America, that contributed in a large way to <laughs> high healthcare costs. Because uh, obviously at the end of your life, if you're, you're doing dialysis every other day, if you're having procedures and surgeries done, like your medical bills go through the roof. Versus if you decide at, I don't know, 70, 60 years old, that uh, this disease that's plaguing me right now is pretty bad. But... I'm just gonna let the disease make it take its natural. I'm not advocating for like assisted suicide or anything like that, but making decisions or letting the disease run its course versus throwing the kitchen sink at it. Yeah. So, and I'm not, I'm not trying to advocate. Like everyone has to make a decision. Like, what is you? What is good for you? <laughs> yeah. And well, so <laughs> in college, I had to take a death and dying course, and it is interesting how death is viewed in the U.S. versus in other parts of the world. And my professor was making the case that death is viewed unhealthily here, that we don't talk about it, that we don't mourn appropriately, and that it's something to be scared of versus other cultures where they have whole death rituals. People, uh, you die at home with your family. People come visit you when they know you're, you're at death's door. Like it's a whole, like the community comes together, et cetera, et cetera. And then once you die, it, it can be anywhere from a few days to a week to a month worth of celebrating your life. So I don't know. I know that in my family, so what, in the last 10 years, I've lost both my grandmas <laughs> mm -hmm. and one chose to do hospice at home. And from, I was there for two, two and a half days, three days before I uh, didn't have, <laughs> didn't have enough time to, to take off work so that I had to come home. And she passed that after that weekend. And from what I hear, it was relatively peaceful. And then my other uh, grandma ended up dying in the hospital. But again, she went to palliative care where she didn't want... She, didn't. she had some kind of advanced directive. She did. She had an advanced directive, whereas my other grandmother was... She had a heart condition, and so she was cognizant and making her own decisions. Um, well, she had, I think she was up until she basically got into hospice. Yes, yes. So was, I think, she made the point, decision to leave a, the hospital, and then she degraded very quickly after coming yeah, I was home. Say, you, the way you were describing her condition, it was... To a point where it was pretty it was clear that she wasn't all there 
at some points, mm-hmm. and she was very sedated. Um, yes, which is not a bad thing, especially if you're going through a painful process. It's not a not a terrible thing to be sedated to some extent. Yeah, but it is interesting. Like when Eric will come home and talk about procedures and things, like it what. <sighs> I think as a doctor, in some sense, you do have to kind of describe what somebody is going to go through. Like if somebody doesn't have an advanced directive, this is what they are going to go through. If we treat, this is what they are going to go through. And then in kind of kind of a brutal way mm-hmm. <laughs> in order for the family to make the best decision. Because like Eric was talking about, you were just talking about it, where you could, what, what was that patient on but basically they were just re- if they stopped treating they just retain fluids and eventually oh like if we had uh, we've had patients who had chronic uh, end-stage renal disease um you know, kidneys aren't functioning and whatnot and so like okay well the patient doesn't want to do dialysis anymore like if he does stop dialysis you know what does that mean what is what is what's that process going to look like uh, obviously he probably has some idea because when it had been on dialysis about having some kind of flare-up of some kind so you know you could have fluid buildup you could have fluid buildup into your lungs you can have a lot of things that can happen that can be a longer maybe drawn out process or it can go really quick but yeah but having that's definitely a key point you're making is that having that conversation with your doctor like okay so if you do discontinue care this is what that would look like this is how things will probably progress uh if you do do the procedure you do continue to do the status well, this is what you can expect as well. Um, and there was a patient that we we had uh, a couple weeks ago, quite elderly, but she had a I think an ulcer that had gone through the intestinal wall, a duodenum wall. And so I think in younger patients we might have like taken them into surgery, done a quick repair, uh, but it's a big surgery. It's I mean you cut open a pretty sizable segment of their abdomen to get access and you you know cutting out a chunk of their intestines and you're sewing it back together and possibly doing a colostomy bag like you know maybe not to do a denum but like you're doing a big surgery and the recovery is drawn out and even the recovery process is not guaranteed you know there's always complications that can come up especially in older patients and so he my preceptor had a, a pretty good conversation with the family and even at the right at the onset, the family was like, "Well, she's she's been talking about it's about you know feeling like it's about time that she goes home and not home to her home, but like home to her, you know heaven." And she's not really interested in more surgeries. She's not, and so that was a pretty easy decision. It wasn't like he was he didn't my preceptor didn't try to badger them like, "Oh, you should get this procedure." Even he was like, "Yeah, okay, if that's where where we're at." Then. And she didn't die under our care or anything like that. And the, your body will heal ulcers and you know, like you have a hole in your intestines. Your body will figure out how to close it. And hopefully, you know, it, it could close it before you die or it can not close it, you know. Uh, so in, in her case, it, I, I think it was closed by the time she left the hospital. So that wasn't going to kill her. It just that's a longer, a slightly longer repair process versus, you know, we could have done that, that repair in like an hour yeah but i think it is important as a doctor to somewhat get comfortable with death and having conversations about death just because at some point you will have to have that conversation and hopefully you're not trying it out on (laughs) for your first time (laughs) on somebody like it 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 sucks but like it it is part of the job and you do need to say they have died you can't you like <laughs> well yeah for, no i get you as opposed to they passed on or they're no longer with us or we'll, we'll make you comfortable before you go or you know. yeah uh, yeah and 
doing that is <laughs> is definitely good. Knowing knowing your limits, obviously. I was having this conversation with a, a friend recently, and this is harkening back to my internal medicine rotation where I had a pulmonologist, and we did a week in critical care. And again, it's just a week; it's not very long, uh, but pretty impactful. Of, getting used to patients dying because uh, all through I felt like all through medical school we learn about all the different diseases and pathologies that can kill you and you can eventually die and then we learn about all the different things that we can do to keep you alive and so I don't know there's a temptation to believe that you can cure all pathologies if you just had the right amount of time and whatnot <laughs> you catch it in time you have right you do all, all the right tools you do all the right things that you can keep people alive and I think critical care kind of bashes you over the head real quick and says, well, that's all well and good that you you can feasibly do some of that stuff and that stuff does work, but it doesn't work 100% of the time and there's definitely going to be patients who pass away uh, despite your best efforts. There are going to be patients who choose that they, they're done fighting and yes, you your interventions can keep them alive, but you know, to what end if they... I mean, we've, gosh, we've passed on so many surgeries this last week. There's not so many, but there's been a few that we passed on where patients in the ICU and they have metastatic cancers that are all over the place. And, like, they're in the ICU, so there's obviously something serious going on. And that we're being consulted for, like, I don't know, like maybe a gallbladder or something like that. And, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure the gallbladder's not going to kill you. Not <laughs> not first. Like, we're not, we're not operating. I, you know, again, as you take someone to the operating room, they have to be able to be under sedation, uh, under anesthesia. And, you know, anesthesia doesn't really want someone who's on pressors. <laughs> you, know, you, you have to use drugs that suppress somebody's respiratory system and their cardiovascular system. And you don't want them on pressors to go into surgery. It becomes very complicated. Yeah. Well, and a patient dying, like you can't take it. You can't take every death as you could have prevented it and it's on you. Like I am sure that in your medical career, you will screw up. And because of some sort of screw up, something will happen. Dang, that's like a nightmare. I'm not, I'm not gonna. It's true though. It, it's it true. Is like a, there, statistically speaking, I, I like don't really the, want to be <laughs> responsible for anyone's death. Statistically I, I, speaking, <laughs> it's going to happen to somebody or somebody you see, know. See, I'm on. I'm still on the. Uh, as a friend of ours, uh, before I was in medical school, he he was like a youth counselor, like for youth group, and he used to always tell his high school t- teens, "Your goal in college is like your goal is to be." Like people neutral, I think is what he said. Like, don't take anyone out of this world, and don't bring anyone into this world. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, for teenagers going off to college, I, that might that might be pretty solid advice. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I, I'm at least trying to. I mean, I'm definitely bringing. I, we brought four, and we're gonna bring a fifth one into this world here soon. Like, I'm pretty sure. I, I like, I'm I'm positive on the positive end, but I still don't want to. I don't no, want to take I'm anyone not. out of this world. So I'm, I'm trying to be people neutral, per se, but <laughs> I, that doesn't mean I can have five free kills or anything like that. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I'm just saying, statistically speaking, like when residencies start, that those first few months is statistically when most deaths in the hospital occur. Oh, yeah. It's the June, uh, July effect. Yeah. yeah. If, if you haven't heard of it, look it up. July effect. So statistically Interns speaking, kill. it will probably happen <laughs> and you may or may not know about it, right? Yeah, in, interns kill. There's also the conference effect as well. I don't, I'm not sure that's the exact same 
the, I thought what, that was different when yeah, there's, all the there's, cardiologists go to own conference. Yeah, so like, sorry, those, those are, usually I always think of those in conjunction because they're kind of interesting phenomenons that happen in medicine. So the July effect is you get all these new interns that are onboarded and we start being expected to act like doctors and treat patients and we don't do great jobs. And so you do see death rates and mortality in the hospital go up in July. But it could be 4th of July, too. No. (laughs) (laughs) There's not that many people blowing their hands up with fireworks. I think you'd Uh, be surprised. (laughs) But then there's also the conference effect. And it it was, if I remember the study correctly, it was essentially whenever there's a big conference, like take cardiology, I think was what the study was focusing on. So you took all these cardiothoracic surgeons who were, came from academic institutions who were the you maybe top considered top in the field and they would all go to these conferences and behind are the other cardiologists who maybe not as accomplished maybe not as noter and maybe not as uh willing to take as big of risk and chances were all left behind and so what they found is that the mortality rate declined when all your top cardiologists are away from patient and of course like that's i think the paper goes into like it's a factor of you have cardiologists that are choosing more conservative route during that time period so instead of doing a risky heart open heart procedure maybe you go a slightly more conservative route so the patient doesn't die and i would dive in whether that was the right choice or not and so generally speaking like all doctors like your cardiologists can all do about the same procedures there's a few who can do a few extra more difficult ones it was a i know i'm jumping all over the place but there was also a book i was reading it was like the patient in room nine thinks that he's god that was an interesting it's a great book but he makes a point somewhere in there like patients always ask for who's the best who's the best surgeon he's like i don't think you should ask for the best it's more of you should ask for who does this more often because your local community hospital uh, and i'm going to go with ortho for this example but like you could have you go to the university hospital where the best orthopedic surgeon is the academic surgeon who does all the complicated stuff out there and you're coming to him with a meniscus tear like you just need a a simple repair versus you can go to the community hospital where the guy there does like 10 every Tuesday and he's got thousands underneath his belt and he'll do a great job but he's not the best and so you you go to the, by going to the university you end up like you could potentially have a more risky procedure done on you because the surgeon is more chance oriented and he's got residents working for him he's got <laughs> interns and medical students and like Maybe you should just go to the community hospital with the guy who can just do it. Well, it's so funny because, like, so I used to work at a for-profit school before I worked at the the pharmacy as a biller. And we had medical students that would ask to practice their phlebotomy skills on you. And up until... Up until I worked there, I always would ask, so how long have you been doing this? Because I I wanted them to hit the vein on the first try. (laughs) As you do, right? Because when they be poked <laughs> a couple dozen times, one and done. Let's but go. It, but it is interesting because the students or the people that are brand new, they don't want to hurt you, so they try their hardest and they're a little bit more careful as opposed to the people that have been doing it for a long time. They're just like, "There's a vein, gotcha!" Like <laughs> they're old hats, right? It doesn't. It they might hit the what? Old hats. Old hats. I've never heard that expression before. Oh, don't don't start with me. I mean, just don't. Just don't. <laughs> 
So sometimes it might not be years of experience. It might actually, what might actually be better for you is to have the newer person because they are, are more cautious and more careful with what they are doing. I guess those two different lessons there. Take what you will. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that uh, that was, I, I, I really just wanted to readdress the advanced directive stuff. We're going to go off a little on a tangent there, but... Yeah. yeah, so we, I think we should probably just wrap it up for the week. And So next week, I'll start with Dr. Wiley. Uh, he's an orthopedic surgeon in the area, so looking forward to kind of going back to something slightly more familiar that I, I knew a little bit about before I went into medical school. So hopefully that goes well. I've heard great things about the rotation. I've heard people say things as, you know, as you're as, as involved as doing steroid injections on day one in clinic. So I'm... I'm looking forward to hopefully doing as much as you'll let me. Yeah. And then uh, we have the in-laws coming this weekend. So that'll be exciting. Yep. Yeah. We, I mean, we don't have a very action-packed next week or so. But, we, you know, on the day-to-day, we still have all the step two CK studying, all the personal statement work going on. We have, um, I have some work for, I, I was recently, I elected or no contest elected to a <laughs> clinic clinical coordinator or board director or something like that. I can't remember my exact title, but I'm trying to find some project to work on that I can actually feel like I'm doing something. So I'm, my, my current goal is to start maybe talking to some of the surgeons and getting ideas of what they want their, sur- their students to know before they go into the rotation and see if I can compile a long list of like from go from surgery to family medicine to internal and, and kind of jump around to get a lot of information from all these different preceptors that we commonly use so that hopefully I can get to the point that when a new rotation starts and you know someone gets assigned to so say Dr. Wiley then I can email them saying hey by the way you're going to see Dr. Wiley at, you know see uh, the coordinator let you know these are the things that he t- typically likes his students to know before they go in so that they don't have to do uh, a lot of learning on the job <laughs> that they, they could just maybe spend the weekend before looking up a few of that those things and getting prepared and maybe knock out some of the stupid silly questions like what's the dress code and <laughs> yeah. where do you go exactly uh, so I can knock out some of the more common questions and that's that's the goal anyway I'm trying to find a way to be useful yep so as always follow us on instagram medfamilymd you can listen to us on pretty much any any podcasting platform yep and we will see you next week all right goodbye